0: That hymn introduces us to the matter that's to be before us this evening, which is to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, in the first chapter and the ninth verse. The ninth verse in the first chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been as Gomorrah, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now those who attend here regularly will know that we are working our way slowly through this introduction to the book of the prophet Isaiah. Here he is addressing his fellow countrymen, his nation, at a time of trouble, a time of confusion, a time of crisis. He isn't getting up just a voice, his own thoughts, and his own ideas. He says, the Lord hath spoken. The prophet is but a mouthpiece. He's like a voice crying in the wilderness, as we are told about the last of the prophets, namely John the Baptist. He's a messenger, and the message is is from God. And God gave him this message for his nation and his people in order that he might tell him two big things. And the first is that he might tell them the cause of their troubles. And secondly, that he might tell them the only way whereby they could be delivered out of their troubles. Now that is uh, really the message of the whole Bible. The Bible can be reduced to just those two things. That is its entire message from beginning to end. The Bible is God's book to men, telling men why things are with him as they are, and then telling him how they can be put right. It's an astounding thing, but that is the whole message of the Bible. It gives us a great mass of detail, takes us through history, but that's all that it's doing. And so, you see, that is why we preach this book, This is God's word, this is God's message to the human race. Here we've got it in the particular form of a message to the children of Israel. But what God says to them, he says also to the whole world. They're in a special relationship, I know, but the message is essentially the same. Man at the beginning was precisely like Israel, so the message is one. They're a kind of specimen put before the world by God in order that in them and through them and by means of them, he might address this great word of his to the entire human race. Well now then, so far in the first eight verses, we've been following the prophet Sunday by Sunday, and it's taken us five Sunday nights to do so already. We've been following him as he makes this extraordinary analysis of sin. It takes time sometimes, you know, to diagnose. The treatment of disease is not as quick as we like to think it is. Because we all like quack remedies, don't we? Why? Well, because they say, put you right at once. Here it is, so cheap, take it, all is well. But that's quack remedy. The real sometimes takes uh, much more time. And the Bible takes time. Because it is a very essential part of this biblical message to tell us that we have got to understand the cause of our troubles before they can ever be put right. There are no shortcuts in this matter. We've got to take it as it is. So you see the prophet began by saying, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. And Then he goes on to tell us what he said. Well, now we've been working through it and we've been looking at the nature and the character of sin, what an ugly, foul thing it is. And then he's gone on to tell us what it does to us and the condition in which it leaves us. We were looking at the ultimate of it last Sunday. Your country is desolate. Your countries, your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence and it is desolate. As overthrown by strangers, and the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard or as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. And we've seen something of the meaning of that. We can sum it up in a well-known phrase in a hymn which talks about sin's foul bondage. And that is what it is. We've seen it so plainly. A life of sin is a life of bondage. Sin is a tyrant, the devil is a tyrant, and the human race fallen from God is under the power and dominion of the devil and all his cohorts, and sin is a life of misery, it's a life of slavery, it's a life of loss, it leaves us utterly helpless, and it leaves us alone. Here is this dramatic picture we were looking at last Sunday night, like a cottage in a vineyard. As a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. The utter isolation of the lost soul. Well, there it is. What a terrible thing sin is. But thank God the prophet has not finished. And we come tonight to this ninth verse. Which in many ways is the crucial verse in this chapter. I say it's a crucial verse because it is a kind of turning point in the prophet's message. So far, it's been nothing but this depiction and delineation of sin, its nature, its character, and its results. And it's a most terrible picture. We've got to get it. We've got to understand it. We've got to believe it. We've got to accept it. But thank God I say he doesn't stop. He's got another side to his message. And here in this ninth verse, we're at the point of transition. Accept. The Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant. We should have been as sudden. We should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now you notice I say it's a turning point because the two elements are to be found in this one verse. But for the first time we are given a glimpse of a hope. What a wonderful word this word accept is. That word except introduces the whole of the gospel. Now that's what I want to try to show you this evening. I want to put it to you that in this one verse we have a very perfect synopsis of the message of the Christian gospel. Now this is a thing the Bible is very fond of doing. It uh, rather likes giving it us in a summary form like this so that we can remember it. It's like these great verses, John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's the gospel in a nutshell. It's exactly the same here. It's all here. Here are the two sides, the two things that the Bible's got to say to every one of us all. Now let's look at them together. Let me summarize the statement of the gospel in this verse, therefore, under three headings. Here is the first one. Sin merits and deserves the punishment of total destruction. Unless, except the Lord of hosts, had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom. And we should have been like unto Gomorrah. What happened to them? Total destruction. The cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, were totally destroyed. There was nothing left. You remember that last verse we read, where Abram, as it were, looking down from the mountaintops where he'd been living, looked down at the cities of the plain, those marvelous cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, which had been so flourishing, full of happiness and joy and enjoyment, people having a good time. Suddenly the whole thing has disappeared. Total destruction. And what the prophet says here is this. He says, as far as we are concerned as a nation, that's precisely what we deserve. We should have been as Sodom. We should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now then, the principle I'm drawing from this and enunciating is that according to the teaching of the Bible, that is the truth about every single one of us. The cities of the plain Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, why? As a punishment for their sin. God sent his angels to destroy them because of their iniquity. Lot had been trying to plead with these people and to tell them to stop. They wouldn't listen to him. Abram had been doing the same. And here at last God says, very well, I'm going to destroy these cities because of their sin, their evil, and their iniquity. And he destroyed them entirely as a punishment for their sin. The prophet Isaiah here says to his fellow countrymen, if we had our deserts, that's what we'd get. Total destruction, with nothing left. Now, this is a very important point. What he is saying is, you see, that there is no plea that can be offered. There is nothing that can be said in mitigation of the sentence and of the wrath of God. Nothing. And I want to put this before you this evening as the first great statement of the Christian gospel always. You see, before our Lord comes the preacher, John the Baptist. What does he preach? He preaches a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Here is the forerunner. Here is the preparation for the gospel. Or if you like it, the law comes first, then the gospel. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ.
1: Repentance
0: and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, here is the first step. We have to realize as members of the human race that we deserve nothing but total destruction. Now the question I want to ask is, do we admit that? Do we confess that? Do we acknowledge that? I'm entitled to ask my question because I hear many people saying, why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't God stop war?" Why doesn't God put an end to this, that, or the other? They blame God for the condition of the world. Well, now my message is that as long as mankind speaks like that, it has no hope whatsoever. The first step is to do what Isaiah does here for the children of Israel, namely to admit and to confess that they haven't a single plea. They don't ask for any mitigation. They admit and confess that if they got their deserts, it would be what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah—total destruction. But on what grounds do I say this? Well, let me give you the biblical grounds for making this assertion. Why is it that man doesn't deserve any forgiveness at all? Because we don't. None of us deserves any forgiveness. Why not? Well, look at it like this: Look at man as he was at the beginning. There he is, as the Bible tells us, and as I'm never tired of reminding you, made absolutely perfect. Made in the image of God. Couldn't have had a greater compliment conferred on him. There is nothing beyond being made in the image and the likeness of God. It's the greatest dignity, it's the greatest honor. That's how God made men. Not only that, he put him in a place called paradise, showered his blessings upon him, Had everything that he needed, including the very companionship of God himself. Could men have been placed in better circumstances? Could men conceivably have been given a better chance? He was given everything that can be desired. He was in a place of perfection. Not only that, God even told men, he said, now look here, you can live like this forever and you can be glorified and become immortal if you but do so. But he said, now I must warn you that if you don't go on obeying me, well then certain consequences will follow. Men couldn't plead that he was ignorant because God warned him. God gave him a law and God told him beforehand what would be the consequences of breaking that law. Now then here is the position I put it in. I turn you into members of the jury. What is your defense of men? What's your defense of Adam and Eve? In absolute perfection, with the friendship and the companionship of God, with all the blessings that anybody could ever desire, there they are. What do they do? They deliberately rebel against God, they disobey him, and they put their own wills before him. Is there any excuse for them? Can any plea be put forward for them? Had God withheld anything from them, you could say, well, they were not given that opportunity, but nothing was with him. Had God not warned them, again, you might say, well, they did it in ignorance, but they didn't. They'd been told, they'd been warned. There is nothing that can be said for men when he originally fell. He deserved not only to be driven out of paradise, He deserved to be destroyed totally and eternally. There's no defense. But wait a minute, what about mankind ever since? Well, isn't it exactly the same? What can be said on behalf of men? What plea can we enter this evening in some kind of mitigation of the sentence of God upon sin? You and I can't plead ignorance. God has given his laws very plainly to mankind. You see, there are the Ten Commandments. So you're saying you don't know. The Ten Commandments have been promulgated so long. And they've been known throughout the running century. The Ten Commandments. God has made quite plain and clear to us in this book what he expects of us, what he demands of us, and the kind of life that he would have us live. It's no use anybody saying, and nobody will be able to say, but I didn't know. I just obeyed my instincts. If only I'd known that that is what God wanted. But my friend, you do know. Everybody knows. God's made it plain. But even if he hadn't given the laws, he gave it to Moses, his servant. We've all got a conscience. And our conscience renders us without any excuse at all. There is in every one of us that sense of right and wrong and of good and and evil. And what we've all got to admit and to confess is this, that though we have known things to be wrong, we've done them. Though we've known things to be right, we haven't done them. The evil that I would not, that I do, and the good that I would, I do not. We have deliberately flouted the vice of conscience. We've gone against this inward monitor that has warned us and condemned us beforehand. There is no excuse. Not only that, we've got history speaking to us. We've got the history that's in the Bible. We've got the history, secular history, that's outside it and which confirms it. We have read what happens to people and to nations that disobey God. It's all here before us. We see what happened even to God's own people, the children of Israel, though they were as the apple of his eye. They disobeyed him and they were carried away into captivity and their city was destroyed. It's all here before us. We see it in the case of great men. They've sinned and they've suffered. It's there in biographies. It's everywhere. We can't say that we didn't know. The experience of the human race tells us that the life of sin is a life of folly. It's a suicidal life. It's a life that leads to misery and penury and hopelessness at the end. It's all there before us. We know it. And yet, in spite of the knowledge, we still persist in it. We've seen that. What can be said in favor of men? But wait a minute, I haven't finished. Over and above all I've been saying, there is this gracious offer of the Christian gospel. Though we've gone astray like this and have brought our troubles upon ourselves, God has spoken and has said, even though you've done this, I'll receive your back, I'll forgive you, I'll give you a new start, I'll send my son to save. The offer of the gospel, it's before us, it's come. And yet mankind rejects it and refuses it. Our Lord himself has put that point in these words. This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now here is the evidence the gospel is facing us. The light has come. But in spite of that, what is man's attitude? What is his attitude to God himself? It is arrogant. It is critical. It is contemptuous. If there is a God, says the modern man, why doesn't he stop war? Why doesn't he stop spastics? Why isn't he doing this and the Modern man stands up and he criticizes God and in arrogance he ventures to put his opinion before God. Isn't that it? In spite of all I've been saying, not only that he deliberately disobeys God, and he does a boasting as he does it, and thinks he's clever and thinks he's wonderful. And not only that he defies God. He stands up to God and says, let God do his worst, as it were. He's not afraid. He is in control of himself. And on top of it all, as I've reminded you, he rejects God's gracious offer in the gospel of his dear Son. Now, my friends, here's my question. What can be said for men? What defense do you put up for men and the human race? What can you say, I say, in mitigation of God's sentence upon sin? What can you say to stop God punishing men as he deserves by what the Apostle Paul calls everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. What grounds of complaint would there be if God destroyed the whole human race as he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Now then, here is the first message of the Gospel. We've got to see that and we've got to admit it and we've got to confess it. Isaiah does that very thing here on behalf of his nation. Except the Lord of Hosts had left us a very small remnant. That's what would have happened to us, and we wouldn't be able to open our mouths because we've been fools. We are God's children, but we've been re- we've been rebelling against Him. We are a sinful nation, laden with iniquity, a seed of evil doers, children that are corrupters. And he says, if God had blotted us all out forever, we wouldn't have a word of complaint to utter against him. Isaiah admits it for the nation. He admits it for himself. In the sixth chapter, this is what I hear him saying. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He admits it. He confesses it. And every other saint of God in the Bible does exactly the same thing. Look at David in his 51st Psalm. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He's not defending himself. He's crying for mercy. He's crying for compassion. David doesn't get up and say, Oh God, I was greatly tempted. And after all, I was only doing something very human. Why shouldn't I do this? Don't be hard on me. Why are you criticizing? David doesn't do that. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. And that is the attitude of the publican that our Lord commends, you remember, in his parable of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee is proud and justifying himself and boasting of his good works. The poor publican is there just inside the door and smiting his breast and can't even look up. He can just cry saying, God have mercy, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the man, says our Lord, that went down to his house justified and blessed. The man who admits that he has no claim, that he's altogether sinful, and that he hasn't got any plea and no excuse, he just falls at the feet of God and cries out for mercy and compassion. Now, my dear friend, I'm holding you at this point because it is the essential preliminary to the gospel. If you want to know the blessings of God and the blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings of the Christian gospel, the first thing you've got to do is to admit that you have no claim upon them at all, that you don't deserve them. That actually you deserve nothing but punishment and hell. Take it from me, my friends. It's as certain as we are in this chapel at this moment. If you are still trying to defend yourself, if you still feel that God hasn't been fair to you, or that God is unkind to you, or that God has kept something back from you, you are still not a Christian. You are still in the position of rebellious Adam and Eve. You're in the position of the Pharisee. The man who gets salvation and who gets to know God and his blessings is the man who throws down his arms. He says, I've got nothing to say. I admit the charge. There's nothing I say in mitigation. I've been a fool, I've been a rebel, I've been vile, I've been foul. If God were to blot me out and to throw me to hell, he'd be doing what's absolutely right and I'd have no grounds of complaint. Have you come to that? Are you ready to admit that you you deserve the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah? Are you ready to say this evening that whatever God may do to you he has a perfect right and is in accordance with law and justice and that he's absolutely righteous? Are you ready to admit that? My friend, it's no use going any further unless you do. You'll never know the blessings of salvation until you down down and cast yourself just as you are in utter helplessness upon the sole mercy of God. Sodom and Gomorrah it's in us every one the lust the evil the foulness not in the same form perchance although there's a great deal of that in modern London but it needn't be in that form the thing itself this evil this rebellion against God this life of violence this life of antagonism this life of spitting upon God's law it's in us all by nature have you admitted it Are you ready to admit and to confess here tonight I say again that God has a perfect right to cast you into everlasting destruction out of his presence? And that if he behaved only in terms of justice and righteousness and law, that is what would happen. And you wouldn't have a word to say. Your mouth would be stopped and you'd be silent and helpless. You'd have to say, yes, he's justified. I can't say a word against it. Now then, that is the first point that the prophet makes. But let me go on to the second point. The second point is that man is totally unable or incapable of doing anything about his own salvation. He doesn't deserve salvation to start with. Secondly, he can do nothing at all about it. Where do you find that, says someone? Oh, I'll tell you where I find it. Except... Were it not for the Lord of hosts, we would have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, you see what he's saying. If it were not that God has done something, that's what would have happened, which means we could have done nothing. Now here again is a most important point in connection with this gospel. No man is ever saved until he realizes that he can't save himself. There is nothing that puts us further away from salvation than to think that we can save ourselves. Let me prove it to you. Here it is, he's admitting it all, that man is completely incapable, totally incapable. Lacks every capacity. What is it that men can't do? Well, here are two big things. Men can't evade God. Have you ever realized that? Here we are in trouble. Here is Israel in trouble. Trying to get away from God. Turning her back upon him, listening to the other gods, listening to the false prophets. Yes, exactly as had been done by Sodom and Gomorrah. They stopped listening to God and poor Lot chose to go and live amongst them. He shouldn't have done so. Abram was wise and lived on the mountaintops. But Lot wanted to go to the cities of the plain and the fruitful land. That's what mankind's always doing, you see. And mankind in its cleverness thinks that it can get away from God. But you can't get away from God. It's an utter impossibility. My dear friend, if you've ever read your New Testament through, you will have seen that that is the great message that is conveyed to us through the story of the children of Israel. They all along were trying to get away from God, I say. They're taking up the gods of the other nations. And they said, it's going to be all right. We've turned up, finished with God. Our God was too narrow, ten commandments and so on. This is the big life and the great life. But they couldn't get away from him. Wherever they went, he went, because he's everywhere. And here is a great lesson that the human race must learn. You can't get away from God. Doesn't matter where I am, says the psalmist in the 139th Psalm, God is always there. If I make my bed even in hell, God is there. God is everywhere. Whither shall I flee, he says, from thy presence? Or whither... Shall I go from thy spirit if I ascend up into heaven thou art there if I make my bed in hell behold, thou art there if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me if I say surely darkness shall cover me even the night shall be light about me yea the darkness hideth not from thee but the night shineth as the day the darkness and the light are both alike to thee thou hast possessed my reins thou hast covered me in my mother's womb And that is always true. Man thinks that if he can only get away from God, he's going to find happiness, but he can't. God is the hound of heaven. He chased me down the nights and down the days. That's it. You can't get away from God. Man has been trying to do it throughout the centuries, but he can't. You see, he's been doing it during these last hundred years. He's been saying there isn't a God, and we don't need a God. We are educated now, we've got science, and we're going to make a perfect world for ourselves. They thought they finished with God, but they hadn't. God comes in, upsets their arrangements, two world wars, things going wrong. Who's that? That's God! That's God punishing as he punished Sodom and Gomorrah, and more is going to come unless we repent and return to him. Man can't evade God. You can't evade the punishment of God. It's a foolish thing to attempt it. Because you see you're getting older and you've got to die. And there God meets with you. And you can't run away. You haven't got the strength. Your soul is ebbing out. Life's going. And there you are face to face with God. You can't evade God. How helpless man is. But look at the other side. Man can not only not evade God. He can do absolutely nothing at all about putting himself right with God. A man may say to himself, all right, I see, I can't get away from God, you're quite right, I've got to die and stand before God in the judgment. Very well, I'm now going to start putting myself right with God. How are you going to do it? I'll tell you the the things which will prove to you that you can do nothing. Man cannot even create within himself the desire for God. Have you ever thought of that? Can you make yourself desire God? You can't. The natural mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And before you and I can make ourselves desire God, we've got to change our natures, we've got to change our hearts, and we can't. The natural man hates God, and he can do nothing about making himself desire God. But wait, can he find God? He may be convinced by this argumentation, and he may say, now then I'm going to start finding God. All right, I'll accept the fact that there is a God. I'm now going to find him. And he begins searching for God. But men can't find God. Here's a man at the dawn of history called Job, and he answers the question once and forever. Can a man by searching find out God? He can't. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, says Job. If only I could find him and state my case, oh, that I knew where I might find him. But he can't. The Apostle Paul comes centuries later and he says the same thing. The world by wisdom knew not God. All your greatest Greek philosophers were trying to find him and they couldn't. They knew there was another God. They called him the unknown God. They built a temple for him, but they couldn't find him. The unknown God. Where is he? He's so high, he's so great, he's so holy. The world, by wisdom, knew not God. Man can't find God, when he, even when he begins to search for him. But more, listen. Even if a man could find God, what can he do about his past sins? What can he do about the crimes he's committed against God? What can he give in exchange for his soul? No, no. Man is totally helpless. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. I can weep the rest of my life. I can live in sackcloth and ashes. I can't atone. All for sin could not atone. Not only that man can't produce a righteousness for himself adequate to stand in the presence of God. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall dwell with that burning fire? Eternal light, eternal light. How pure the soul must be that placed within thy searching sight it shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. Who can do it? Oh, how can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim? Before the ineffable appear and on my naked spirit bear that uncreated beam. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He sees every spot and stain. How can a man cleanse his hands? Where can I find a robe of righteousness? I can't. It's impossible. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And on top of it all, man can't deliver himself from sin's foul bondage. We've been looking at it the previous Sunday nights. We've seen the slavery of men. He's a slave to lust and to passion. Slave to the devil, slave to the mind of the world. And he's held in captivity and he can't move. Strangers are devouring your land in your presence and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And you're helpless, you can't do anything. They're stronger. The strong unarmed, keepeth his goods in peace. And oh, I cannot escape much as I try to. You can't do it. Very well, you see, there is man's condition. He can do nothing about his own salvation. No man can conquer the world and the flesh and the devil. No man can answer the law of God. No man can stand righteous before God. Oh, but you say I've always done a lot of good. You were good, my friend, in the sight of God is nothing but filthy rags. That's not my term, it's the Bible's. I'll go more. I'll say more. The Apostle Paul calls it dung, manure. What was gain for me, I count but loss for Christ. Yea, I count all things but loss, but dung and refuse. Don't talk about your goodness. In the sight of God, he has absolute perfection. Here is holiness without a blemish. And anything that you can produce, it's vile, it's foul, it can't stand. Impossible. And so we see the utter helplessness and hopelessness of man. Except the Lord of hosts. It left us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Come, my dear friend. I just want to leave this as a question before I come to my last point. Do you still think that you can save yourself and put yourself right with God? Tell me, are you still holding on to the fact that you're a good man or a good woman? If you are, you are not a Christian. You're outside Christ. You're as far away from the kingdom of God as the Pharisees were, and they were the furthest that the man could possibly be. Do you think you can fit yourself to stand before God? Well, very well, you're the biggest fool in the universe. It just means that you know nothing at all about God. For if you knew anything about God, you'd soon feel like this man Isaiah did, as I've already reminded you. Here he was, a very good man and a priest and a prophet. And yet, you see, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. He had a glimpse of the glory of God. Listen. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he just felt that he was vile and unclean and totally unworthy. Have you come to see that, my friend? Have you realized that you don't deserve salvation, that you deserve nothing but hell? Have you realized that you can do nothing about your salvation? Thank God I go on to my last point. Man's salvation is entirely of God, except the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, had left unto us a very small remnant, but thank God he has. You know, says this man to his fellow countrymen, were it not that God has left a remnant, we would all have been destroyed, every one of us. But he has left us a very small remnant. It's he who's done it. We couldn't do it. We were completely helpless. And we deserve nothing but hell. But we are saved. Why? Well, the Lord of hosts. Here is the glory of the gospel. And you see, it is all pictured to us so perfectly in that story of Sodom and Gomorrah which I read to you at the beginning. Lot and his family would have been destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah were it not for the fact that God brought them out. Did you read those words? Did you hear them? Here are Lot and his family. The messengers come to them, the messengers of God, these angels. And they tell them, escape, escape for your life. God's going to destroy the cities. Get out, get out at once. Then did you notice the term, and while he lingered, even though he'd had the message, he lingered, Lot lingered, and his wife and his daughters. While he lingered, the angel came and put his hand upon his and led him out, and likewise his wife and the daughters. While he lingered, He had to be led out forcibly, otherwise, he would have been entirely destroyed. Salvation is entirely of God, it is His work from beginning to the very end. And you know, my friends, it is because of what God has done in this way that I'm standing in this pulpit tonight. What puts me into this pulpit is the word accept. Accept the Lord of hosts, but He's done it. I'm here to announce. That with him there is mercy that he may be feared. Look at it. Except the Lord of hosts had done it. He's done it. He did it for Israel. This is what he's done in his son for the whole human race. Look at it. Look at the wonder of it. Have you ever thought of the wonder of the fact that there is a gospel to preach at all? Why do you say it's a wonderful thing, says somebody? Well, I'll tell you. God was under no obligation whatsoever to do it. I've already demonstrated to you that if he damned us all and destroyed us all forever, nobody would ever complaint against him. He'd be absolutely right and just and legal. He had no obligation, but he's done it. The very one whom we've offended is the very one who delivers us. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is. The God whom we've scorned, the God whom we've blasphemed, the God whom we've disobeyed, the God whom we've criticized, is the very one who delivers us himself. The one who had the power to consign us to perdition, this Lord of hosts, uses that self same power in our salvation and in our deliverance. He's got the power. Do you remember what our Lord said one afternoon to his fearful disciples? They were afraid of men and he said, Fear not them that have power to destroy the body and after that have nothing that they can do. But I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him that hath power to cast both soul and body into hell. That's the power of God. He and he alone can cast into hell, but here he is. He uses that very power to translate us and to put us into heaven. Oh, the marvel and the wonder of it, that the God whom we've offended and who could so rightly throw us to hell is the very one who himself saves us, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. It's he who has done it. What is the explanation of why he's done it? And the answer is, it is because of his own character. Why is it that God saves anybody at all? Well, it is because he's God. It is because He is a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy and of kindness and of compassion. It is because he is a God who taketh no delight in the death of the ungodly but rather that he should turn and be saved. What led God to make a way of salvation? Nothing but his own heart of love and of grace in spite of us and in spite of our sin. But then look at his wisdom. The wisdom of God is displayed in his planning and devising and preparing this wonderful way of salvation. And then think of his power. He calls him the Lord of hosts. And it means this. He's the God who made the hosts of heaven. All the planets and the stars and the constellations. The host of heaven. He's made them. He controls them. They're all, as it were, at his fingertips. The Lord of hosts. There is no end to his power. That's the power that he's used in our salvation. Here and here alone is the power that can deliver us from the grip of the devil and from the grip of sin and lust and shame and evil and even from hell itself. Here is a power that can create us anew. That can give us a new heart and a new mind, a new outlook, a new understanding and a new hope and a fresh start. The power of God, the Lord of hosts. And here is a power sufficient and the only one to hold us and to lead us through the remainder of life, to take us through death itself, the last enemy, and finally into heaven and into everlasting glory. The power of God. Well, the hymn writer has put it for us. Stronger his love than death or hell. Its riches are unsearchable. The firstborn sons of light Desire in vain its depths to see. They cannot reach the mystery, the length and breadth and height. The love of God in Christ, stronger his love than death or hell. Its riches are unsearchable. Were it not that the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom. We should have been like unto Gomorrah. But with his almighty power, he's delivered us. It's his character that accounts for it. The love and the compassion, the wisdom, the power. But I do want to leave you with this thought, with the fact of it. Were it not that the Lord of hosts had left unto us, he's done it. This isn't a theory, this isn't a fairy tale, this isn't a pious hope. Listen, says this man, he's done it. He says, you know, at this moment we'd have been non-existent. We'd have been destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah. We wouldn't be here at all, were it not that God has done this. He did it for the nation of Israel. They were carried away to the captivity of Babylon. He brought a remnant back. He brought them out of Egypt in the same way. They were utterly helpless in Egypt. It's God that brought them out with that mighty hand of his that can divide a Red Sea, divide a River Jordan, take them through the wilderness, give them manna. Here's the power that saves. He's done it. And I, I say again, am in this pulpit because of what God has done. This isn't a theory, this isn't an idea. I am here to present to you an historical gospel. I am here to tell you of what God has actually done about you and about your salvation. He promised at the beginning that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. Yes, says David, he hath laid help on one that is mighty. It needed someone stronger than Satan to deliver us. And no man could do it very well. O oh, loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the conflict came. A second Adam. Who is he? Christ, the Son of God, the Babe of Bethlehem, the Mighty One of God, stronger than hell, stronger than the devil, stronger than evil, the Mighty Conqueror, the Everlasting King the one who carries the government upon his shoulders. He's the one. God has done it. God so loved the world that he gave, he has given, his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why is it that the whole world isn't in hell at this moment? Why is it that there will any be saved at all at the end and dwell in the glory everlasting? There's only one reason. When the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. My friend, are you resting in this except? Are you holding on to this except, having seen your guilt, your shame, your desert of hell, having seen your complete and utter helplessness and hopelessness, do you know, do you believe, have you accepted the fact that God has sent his only son into the world in order to redeem you, in order to take hold of you and to take you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you and translate you into the kingdom of his dear son? Do you believe that? Do you know it? Have you felt that power? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, says the Apostle Paul, and I repeat his words this evening. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For this reason. Because it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. This is not a message telling you to pull yourself together and pull yourself up by your bootstrings. This is not something to tell you to turn over a new leaf and live a better life and use great willpower and get people to help you and encourage you. It can't be done. It's a complete and total failure. The power of God, the Lord of hosts, the Almighty and the Everlasting, It is the power of the everlasting God who having made you at the beginning can make you again and make a new man of you and give you something of his own divine nature once more and lead you until you are safely with him in the glory everlasting. Except the Lord of hosts. This is what makes a man a Christian. That he says I am what I am. By the grace of God, were it not for the grace and the love and the compassion and the mercy and the wisdom and the power of God were it not that God had sent his only begotten son into this world to live and to die and to bear my punishment on the cross and rise again and ascend and take his seat at the right hand of God and send down the Holy Spirit were it not that God had done all that I would be lost I would be damned I would be helpless I would be finally hopeless that's what makes a man a Christian that he says except the Lord of hosts, had done what he has done, I would be yet completely undone, without God, without hope. In the world, and facing a total, a final, an everlasting destruction, my dear friend, Do you glory in this? Accept. If you do, you are a Christian. If you don't, you are yet in your sins. And the end of that, if you die in that condition, is everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, I plead with you. Listen to this blessed, accept the love of God, the compassion. See it in Christ. Look at his face. See him dying. Accept. Hold on to this blessed, accept. And ask God to include you under it. I can promise you this. He won't refuse you. He that cometh unto me, said the Lord Jesus Christ, I will in no wise cast out. Cry unto him, just as you are. And you'll have the surprise of your life. And you'll be ready to sing this last hymn, The Confession of the Experience of Charles Wesley, hymn number 472. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued. Hymn number 472.